You're listening to a sermon from our pastor, Brian Payne. We would love to have you worship God with us this Sunday at 1045 in the morning and at six o'clock in the evening as we make, nurture, and equip disciples of Jesus Christ in Auburn and throughout the world. Good morning. As we continue to contemplate what Jesus accomplished for us by his substitutionary work, turn your Bible to John chapter 19. We're down to the last three chapters of this glorious gospel. Thank you, Josh. Uh, This was a late second fill-in. One of our players got injured this weekend, or actually, it sounds better, he has a fever. Uh, And so we didn't want him to spread that fever, so we told him to stay home. And I can assure you, when Adam can't be here, he hates it worse than anybody. But you can pray for him. His fever was rising yesterday. And we'll pray that uh, his fever will subside uh, very soon. But thank you, Josh, for leading us so well with choir and orchestra. So this morning, we're going to be looking at verses 1 to 5 as we are now early Good Friday morning, getting close to the crucifixion. Let's pray and ask the Lord to prepare our hearts for the preaching of the word, even as he has already done so through the singing of the word. Father, thank you uh, that we do, as believers, stand forgiven at the cross. Father, it occurred to me as we were singing that it's only those who have experienced the miracle of knowing that they're a sinner and that their biggest problem is their sin that can sing that song with joy and gratitude. And I pray, Lord, that for those of us who can sing that song with joy and gratitude, this sermon would only fuel uh, our capacity to sing that song, the song of the Lamb, uh, with, with great fervency for those who were just going through the motions as we were singing that song. I pray that this sermon could be used to, to form in them a, a sense of brokenness over their sins and a desire to to flee to the Lord Jesus Christ where the fire of your wrath has already been burned. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. On February the 11th, 1892, 132 years ago today, the Prince of Preachers, Charles Haddon Spurgeon, was laid to rest. 132 years ago today, at the age of 57, he was buried. He had died on January the 31st. And at the burial site, Pastor Archibald Brown, who was a Spurgeon College graduate and one of Spurgeon's best friends, gave the words, eloquent words. And here's what he said. In tears, Beloved president, that is president of Spurgeon College, faithful pastor, prince of preachers, brother, beloved, dear Spurgeon, we bid thee not farewell, but only for a little while, good night. Thou shalt rise soon at the first dawn of the resurrection day of the redeemed. It is we who linger in the darkness. Thou art in God's own light. Our night 
shall soon be past, and with it all our weeping. Then with thine our song shall greet the morning of a day that knows no cloud nor close, for there is no night there. Champion of God, thy battle long and nobly fought is over. The sword which clave to thy hand has dropped at last. A palm branch takes its place. No longer does the helmet press thy brow, off weary with its surging thoughts of battle. A victor's reef from the great commander's hand has already proved thy full reward. Here for a little while shall thy rest in precious dust. Then shall thy well-beloved come, and at his voice thou shalt spring from thy couch of earth, fashioned like unto his body in glory. Then spirit, soul, and body shall magnify the Lord's redemption. Until then, beloved, sleep. We praise God for thee, and by the blood of the everlasting covenant, hope and expect to praise God with thee. Amen. So how does a grieving believer cope with the death of a beloved fellow believer? Well, that last line says it all. We praise God for thee, and by the blood of the everlasting covenant, hope and expect to praise God with thee. You see, as great as a man of God as Spurgeon was, and as great a preacher as he was, perhaps the greatest preacher in the history of the West, his hope was not not in any of these things. Indeed, his hope, his expectation was in the blood of the covenant, the blood of the everlasting covenant. The very covenant that was to be ratified in just a few hours as we approach our text. We're just hours out from Jesus' cross. But it wasn't just the cross that Jesus was going to endure. In fact, it could be said that his entire life was one of enduring great trials and tribulations. Uh, the great catechism says that uh, his ex humiliation consists in his being born and that in a low condition and undergoing the miseries of this life and the cursed death of the cross. <clears throat> so Jesus is undergoing not just the cross, he's undergoing trials prior to the cross for us and our salvation. We have seen that he is going to endure six trials, three before the Jews and then three before the Romans. Now he's before the Romans and in particular Pilate. Uh, most specifically, he will go before Pilate, then he will go before Herod, and then he will go before Pilate again. This is where things are as we come to John 19. 
He is standing before Pilate and he's about to be condemned in John 19. Now, we saw last time that Pilate wants to release him because Pilate recognizes his innocence. And so he appealed in chapter 18, verse 39, to a, a Passover custom by the Jews. He says, you have a custom that I should release one man for you at the Passover. So do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? And we saw last time they cried out, cried out again, not this man, but Barabbas. Now Barabbas was a robber. But now Pilate is going to try to work out another plan to get Jesus off the hook. Part of that has to do with the fact that, yes, he, he knows Jesus is innocent, but his wife, and they were very superstitious, polytheistic and, and, and secular. Uh, his wife had a horrible dream about Jesus. And, and she had warned him of doing anything with Jesus concerning capital punishment. And so he's going to try to do something else to get Jesus off the hook. First part of our passage, we see in doing so, there's this great confession by Pilate's men that we would embrace, but they are speaking greater than they know as he undergoes the trials and the struggles and the pains of being under the the, the thumb of these godless people. That brings us to the first part of this passage. We've got two points today. Hail the suffering king, behold the sinless man. Look with me in verse, 19, or verse one of chapter 19. Then Pilate took Jesus. Remember, he just acknowledged his innocence. You expect him to release him. Pilate took Jesus and he flogged him. Now, John isn't interested in, in informing us of why Pilate did this after announcing Jesus' innocence. But Luke gives us Pilate's thoughts. And here's what Pilate was thinking, and we know this from Luke 23, 16. I will therefore punish and release him. Now, the Romans distinguished between three kinds of floggings, uh, from less severe to most severe, okay? The most severe kind of flogging was the kind of flogging that a criminal would experience before capital punishment. The least severe flogging was just kind of a, a friendly warning to, to stop doing what you're doing, stop violating the law. It was a warning against further infractions. But even the milder flogging was with a lead-tipped whip, and it would have caused severe bleeding from the one who was flogged. Well, the third was the most severe. Pilate, at this point, gives Jesus the least severe of the floggings. Clearly, it was Pilate's attempt to convince the Jews that he had been punished enough. Jesus will also be beaten in the most severe way after he is 
uh, condemned after it is clear that he is going to the cross. We know that from Mark 15, verse 15. That will explain why he will not even have the strength to carry the cross up as he goes to be crucified. He will have been beaten so severely. Uh, Now, importantly, as we have seen, this encounter with Pilate was recorded in the Apostles' Creed. Now, as Christians, I met with a, a young man from the LDS church on Friday, and I, I spoke to him. I said, one of the things that distinguishes us of many things is that we hold to the early creeds, okay? We hold to the early confessions. And one of those creeds that we hold to is the Apostles' Creed. The Nicene-Constantinople Creed, uh, Chalcedon, these are all creeds that if you're a Christian, you will embrace. You have to embrace because they are clear expositions of what the Bible teaches concerning ultimate things. Well, the Apostles' Creed picks up this encounter with, with Pilate. Now, the Apostles' Creed first appeared around 390 A.D., And it is a faithful summary of the history of creation, of providence, and redemption, and the Trinitarian God behind those three things, okay? So it's a faithful exposition. Now, as Christians, we believe more than what the Apostles' Creed confesses, but we certainly don't believe less. And though it was not written by the Apostles, it is a faithful summary of what the apostles taught. There are 12 statements in the Apostles' Creed. Let me offer you the first four in just brief form here. It says, I believe in God the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, this is the second statement, his only son, our Lord. The third statement, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. And here's the fourth statement of 12. He suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. So the Apostles' Creed tells a story that proceeds from the creation of the world to the birth of Jesus without any hint that anything has gone wrong in the world, okay? Now, notably, the mention of suffering and the man Pilate are the first indications in the creed that things are not the way they are supposed to be. So, everything looks fine in those first three statements. I believe in God the Father. I believe in Jesus Christ, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit. Everything looks fine. But then comes Pilate in this creed. And what does Pilate do? He causes the Son of God to suffer. Now you think about this. The one who allowed the lepers to touch him the one who made the lame to walk, the blind to see, the deaf to hear, 
who healed the sick, who rebuked the wind and the waves, the one who would raise three people that we know of recorded in the Gospels from the dead. This is the one who suffered under Pontius Pilate. Now, what's remarkable about this creed is it jumps straight from Jesus' birth to his death. I find that interesting. Born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate. It's as if he didn't live between his birth and his suffering under Pontius Pilate. What gifts? Uh, Isn't his obedient life important to us? We saw this last week. His obedience is necessary for our salvation because we don't obey. And we need a right relation to the law and a right relation to the righteous God. And that will only come by grace through faith in the one who actually obeyed the law. So what gives here in this passage? Well, uh, the early Christians saw that you could sum up Jesus's life in these words, he suffered. He suffered. That was his life. He suffered his entire life undergoing the miseries of this life for us and our salvation. How can we be indifferent and bored with that message? The only answer to that is that you are calloused and hard in your sin and rebellion. He suffered for us in our salvation. Now, What's remarkable here is that the creed mentions Jesus' crucifixion, his death, and his burial. And and certainly all of those things include what, what would be known as his suffering. But he makes a distinction here between suffering under Pontius Pilate and crucifixion. I find that interesting. So, the creed is telling us that it wasn't just the cross that was necessary for our salvation. It was the suffering prior to the cross. So, why did Jesus have to suffer in order for us to be saved? Well, I I can't give you a comprehensive answer to that, but I can give you three reasons that we know of from Scripture. Here's why Jesus had to suffer as he did even before he was placed up on the cross. First of all, as an example for us. In 1 Peter 2, verse 21, for to this you have been called because Jesus or Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example. So he, he suffered for us because we need an example. You know why we need an example? We we are horrible when it comes to suffering. We don't know how to respond when it comes to suffering, especially for people who are comfortable in the West. So they're leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. Here it is. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth, all the while suffering, by the way. When he was reviled... Have you ever been reviled? Probably this week. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten. But here's what he did, and this is the example. 
And this is how you know you have God's glory as your greater interest and not your selfish motives. He continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. So one of the reasons he suffered is because we need the example. We need the example of how to respond when we experience, yes, suffering, but how to respond contextually when we are treated unjustly. And in a broken world, you will be treated unjustly. Oftentimes, if you're a vocal Christian, because of your faith. Sometimes it comes even in the church, God forbid. Let me give you a second reason that he had to suffer even before he was placed on the cross. Hebrews 4, verse 15. We do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted. You could even use that word tested for that translation. As we are yet without sin. He was tested, he was tempted, as we are yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. So from this passage, it's clear that not only does the Son of God know what it's like to suffer as a human being, but also because of what he endured, he is able to help us when we find ourselves in situations like his. He brings tailor-made grace and mercy to help us in our suffering. Again, in this context, when we are treated unjustly. And in our text, he's facing an injustice you will never face. He's facing the height of injustice even though we know that we will face injustice in a broken world, but you have a high priest. Give me third one, third reason why he had to suffer before he went to the cross to bring us to glory. Hebrews 2.10 says, for it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist in bringing many sons to glory should Mark the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. Now, that's a, that's a verse that has been greatly expounded upon. What do you mean that he had to be, uh, be brought to uh, some kind of perfection? Um, that he should, be, he should be marked as perfect through suffering. Well, the Son of God was inherently perfect. He was morally perfect. He was inherently righteous and inherently holy. But in some mysterious way, his life was brought by suffering, okay, to a form of perfection, or we might even use the word completion, which was necessary for our salvation. 
In other words, he became perfect in his vocation as Savior. He became perfect in his vocation as our substitute because he determined to do God's will in every area of his life where we don't do God's will perfectly in any area of our lives. In other words, he would obey God for us. He would obey God for us, the unrighteous, even in the most extreme injustice and bodily sufferings so that we might have a righteousness that stands before God in the day of judgment. There's only so much suffering that you will take that I will take. There's only so much injustice that we will take before we sin. Even if we don't sin outwardly, we will sin inwardly with our wicked and vindictive attitudes. And this man, as Paul says in Philippians 2, suffered even to the point of death. He obeyed Jesus, or God the Father, even to the point of death, the death of the cross. In other words, his suffering before the cross was necessary so that we might have a righteousness that will stand before God in the day of judgment. Meanwhile, the soldiers see all of this as comical. This is the funniest thing that they've seen. Notice in verse 2, the soldiers twisted together a, a crown of thorns, put it on his head, and arrayed him in a purple robe. The crown of horn, uh, thorns likely came from the date palm plant. And they tell us that these, the thorns that would come from the date palm plant could exceed 12 inches, a foot. And if it was placed on someone's head, it would penetrate the skull. The skull. Now I want you to think about this. The one who will be crowned king of the new creation in his resurrection, okay, is crowned with a crown of thorns, which is the manifestation of the fallen creation. Genesis 3, 17 and 18, one of the fallouts of a curse being on the world was now the world would be filled with thorns. I think the imagery here and the irony here is palatable. They came up to him saying, Hail, King of the Jews. That is a, a, a word of honor. Hail. A word of acknowledgement, of, of respectful acknowledgement, except they're being facetious. They're being sarcastic. They're also speaking greater than they know. Indeed, he is the King of the Jews. But he's also the King of the world. If they had known that, instead of putting a crown of thorns on him, they would have saying, crown him with many crowns. But they don't recognize him as that because they are in their sin. Just like some may be here this morning. You don't see Jesus as Lord because you're in your sin and you love your sin. It's a horrible place to be. They came up to him saying, hail king of the Jews. And they struck him with their hands. Now, again, irony is seen throughout the Gospel of John, and this text is no exception. Think about this. These ignorant, foolish, 
wicked soldiers are utterly oblivious. The one for whom every knee shall bow, Philippians 2.10. The one for whom every tongue will confess as Lord, Philippians 2.11, is sarcastically and blasphemously hailed king of the Jews. Verses four to five continue to drive home just how wicked their actions are. But when they speak, they're speaking glorious words. They're not even aware enough to understand. Hail, the suffering king, and here in the last part of this passage, behold, the sinless man. Look with me in verse four. Pilate went out again, and he said to them, see, I am bringing him out to you that you may know that I find no guilt in him. We saw it back in chapter 18, verse 38. I find no guilt in him. Next week, we'll see in verse 6. I find no guilt in him. Again, Jesus is obeying for you. Because... Whether you want to concede it or not, you're going to die. You, you're going to die, and you're going to spend eternity, okay, after death, somewhere. And, and it's either going to be based on your works in your body or Jesus' works in his body. That's what your judgment will be based on. Are we saved by works? Yes. Jesus' works. It's the only works that will save us. Even Pilate recognizes this man has no guilt. Verse 4, I find no guilt in him. Verse 5, so Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe, which was probably a soldier's jacket. Pilate said to them, behold the man. Outside of the incarnation itself, which was the great event of hum humiliation, this is the greatest display of humility, self-control, and long-suffering in the history of the world. This is the anti-Adam. Now, Adam was a servant king placed in God's garden, right? But he sinned. And the world was cursed by God. And as I said earlier, thorns first appear after Adam's sin. Thorns are a symbol of the curse on creation. But this one, Jesus comes as the last Adam, the man, as Pilate confesses. He comes as the man who is going to remove the curse. As Jesus wore the crown of thorns, he was headed to the cross where he would bear the curse symbolized by the thorns. 
the thorns which were a sign of the curse on creation, a sign of the defeat of Adam, are ironically being transformed into a sign of the kingship and the victory of the one who would overcome the curse. Behold the man. Jesus is the sinless man. The king who will reign by bearing the curse. The curse that is on every sinner. As Paul said, he, he redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. Inasmuch as the seed of Abraham uh, was to bring God's blessing to all the world, Genesis 12, 3, and reverse the curse that we read about in Genesis 3 to 11. There's five times we read about that curse. Here we have the ultimate expression of the seed of Abraham who would reverse that curse by becoming a curse for us as symbolized by the earmark of a cursed world, a crown of thorns. Behold the man. Here is the man spoken of in Genesis 3.15. The seed of the woman or the seed of the serpent will bruise his heel, but the seed of the woman will crush his head. Behold the man. Here is the one that Moses spoke of in Deuteronomy 18.15, who will be the last day's prophet, and you will listen to him. He writes, behold the man. Here is the one that Jacob blessed through Judah who said, the scepter will not depart from your seed until you have the obedience of the nations. Behold the man. Here's the one from the seed of David when, when God comes to David through Nathan and he says, your offspring will have an everlasting kingdom. Behold the man. Here's the one in Zechariah 6, verses 12 and 13, the priest Joshua who is crowned with a regal crown and who have an enduring kingdom as a priest king. Behold the man. This is the stem from the stump of Jesse endowed by the Spirit who will usher in a new heavens and new earth where the lion shall lay down with the lamb. Behold the man. Pilate is speaking greater than he knows. Here is the last Adam. As Paul would write in 1 Corinthians 15, the first man was from the earth. That's Adam, a man of dust. The second man is from heaven. Behold the man. What is this passage about? Our response, hail, hail your suffering king. Behold your sinless man, the man for us in our salvation. Let me close these words from a great Puritan, Robert McDonald. The first Adam closed the door upon us, but there was a second Adam to open it. It would come through his cross, his resurrection, the gift of the Spirit. But if the second Adam closes the door, there is no third Adam to open it. 
So I joined Hebrews 2 and said, how can we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? This is a word to believers. Behold your king. Behold the man for us and our salvation. May the Spirit use those truths to grow you in faith, hope, and love, and worship, and praise, and exaltation, and fervency, and zealousness for the the things of Christ. May it be seen in how you love your spouses, and how you love your neighbor, and how you engage the lost, how you love your church family. But this is also a passage for those who do not know this king. As Josh and the musicians come forward, the reality is, I would think most unbelievers today would have enough conscience to see how wicked Pilate is after deeming Jesus as innocent, but then flogging him. And then seeing how he allowed the soldiers to mock him and slap him around. I think you would have enough conscience to see that as wicked, but here's the deal. Apart from union with Christ, you are more like Pilate and more like these soldiers than you are Jesus. And you need him today. You need to humble yourself, repent of your sins, stop playing games, riding a fence, and bow the knee to King Jesus. Behold the man. We want to give you an opportunity to do that as we stand and sing. We'll have pastors here at the end of the aisle. Won't you respond to that gospel plea this morning? Thanks for worshiping with us today. If you felt the Lord leading you to respond today, whether that was to receive Christ for the first time or to take your next step in baptism, or if you have a prayer request, we want to start that conversation with you. Visit lakeviewbaptist.org contact to get in touch with one of our pastors. And as always, you can stay connected with us through our social media and website.